Hey folks, good evening. Welcome to Emmaus Way. We're going to go ahead and get started, and it's a small crowd tonight, but um, uh, we are going to go ahead and, and make a start. Uh, all right. Welcome, everybody. It's good to see everyone back after traveling and uh, holidays and all of that. I hope that the, uh, the weather was okay for everybody. Um, Travis and I were in Florida, and we felt like um, very young people when both my dad and my uncle said, you miss the snow. You have to brag to all your friends. And we said, we miss the snow. Like, we wanted to play in it. So we felt um, like the youngins that we probably are. But um, I am Amy, and I am uh, one of the pastors here at Emmaus Way. 
and we are so glad to have you all gathered with us here tonight. Um, if you haven't been with us before, um, Emmaus Way is a community that is dedicated to um, finding redemption in the world around us and being involved um, in the places in Durham and um, the surrounding areas which um, we feel like the spirit moves us and um, that includes getting to know one another um, through dinners, through small groups, um, and through our gathered worship tonight. Our worship tonight looks a little different. We have a little motley crew right here, a wonderful uh, second string. Oh, you have a name. Awesome. <laughs> it's a pun. Right. I, I get it. I, that's right. I, I get it. Somehow, somehow I got that. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Well, big thanks to our musicians tonight. Um, Wade is, is, has the week off. Um, we would like to give him a week of rest, and we have so many talented musicians uh, among us, so we thank you guys um, a lot for, for doing that, for giving your time um, and your gifts. A um, couple of announcements. The next couple of weeks, um, in three weeks from today, we have um, two things going on. We have our next uh, installment of the Minister's Liturgy which is our right of belonging. So if you have been with Mace Way for a while and feel like this is your community and this is the place that you want to um, you know, dedicate yourself, um, the Minister's Liturgy is the uh, kind of way that we do that here. So if you're interested in that, um, that's gonna be on January 23rd, 22nd. I don't know what the dates are anymore. Um, <laughs> 23rd. Um, if you're interested in that, um, contact Tim. And he can give you more information on that. And that is actually also going to be our um, quarterly Ecclesia meeting. So we will worship from 5 to 6 that night, then have pizza, dinner, and then move on to our meeting. And Jenny's not here, I don't think, but she's our point person. She's the person that uh, keeps us on track. So we hope to uh, get out of here by 7.30 that night. We're pretty good about that. So anyways, it's good to see you all tonight. Um, so we're happy to have you and uh, enjoy worship. We're starting a new uh, series tonight called uh, Spiritual Autobiography. And so uh, Tim will talk more about that later on. But uh, basically tonight, a lot of the songs uh, have a narrative, uh, a narrative feel to them. Uh, and so uh, this next song, I wish it had been my idea, but it wasn't. Um, classic uh, 1980s CCM hit, Place in This World. Uh, we're going to try to do it as, uh, as differently from the original as possible. Um, uh, but it's just, you know, talking about, um, uh, you know, what, what is my purpose here and how does God fit into that story? So...
Thanks, guys. Hey, I want to thank you again for working on the holidays to uh, pull this together, Philip and gang. Second string knot, I'll have to say. Uh, I also should point out um, a little tradition around here on Epiphany. Uh, Laura was our, our food maker today, and I think we have Epiphany bread, which means that, and it, it's not a walnut this year, it's a, it's a pecan this year. Uh, <laughs> they're called the roses. They've got a whole ton of those. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> no. Remember, she was bossing people around all night long. He was loitering by the bread. That's I was concerned about that. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Appreciate that. Yeah, Andy has some skill. He looks like a man who who hit the Lucky Charms hard when he was about eight or nine, you know, grabbing all the stuff that his siblings wanted to eat. So uh, anyway, thank you, Laura, for doing that. Uh, it, it is. It's great to regather. Uh, I, did anybody come last Sunday and missed kind of the the. Uh, the, the mega announcement or however we did to say that there was, we were canceling, anybody show up? Good. Well, I'm glad that didn't, that didn't happen. You know, we took a poll, uh, given being a community, and it's exciting to see people again, being a community where so many folks travel. Uh, I think we had very, very few people going to be in town anyway on the 26th, but uh, there it was, the first uh, uh, white Christmas in Raleigh, Durham for night since 1947. So uh, that was uh, kind of an impressive event. So anyway, I'm glad no one showed up uh, looking for us. Wade was ready to roll, but we, we were like, well, it's, it's, let's leave people home. So anyway, hey, um, it, one of the things we always like to do before we get, begin our dialogue, and we're, I'm excited, um, you know, this fall, we were in the midst of what I thought was a, an important a significant, a shaping story in the text. And one of the things I was really excited about as a community is I knew that, I mean, knowing you guys, I knew that we could circle around Joshua and Judges and grab that as a sacred text for us as a community and work that it is because it, the, so much that's in those stories are, are overwhelming and challenging and, and all of those things. But it, it 
teaches us in some ways to understand that the scriptures are a, a dramatic narrative, uh, a story of God's work and intervention. Uh, and, and, and so it was, it was good to do that. But I'm excited for the next several weeks because we're going to kind of live in this idea of story and the idea of spiritual autobiography and live in the exciting tension between the story of our own lives and the story of what God is doing and unfolding. And I'm excited about the opportunity that we're going to have to kind of um, spend our energy thinking about those stories. And in fact, next week, um, we're going to do something special. We're going to let Wade, uh, Wade just released a CD um, uh, right before Christmas called We. And in many ways, you are a huge part of the story of, of that CD. It's the essentially the story of his life uh, from uh, the last 10 years or so. It, it grabs early parts of it, but it's primarily the last decade of his life. And he's going to perform that with some of our musicians and tell the story of that music and the story of his life. And I know, I know some of you know Wade extremely well. And Michelina and others have recorded and worked with him and Sarah and all those. But it, the music is powerfully personal. And those of you who kind of remember the first kind of year that we had in Emmaus Way, uh, to, for Wade to come on Sunday nights and to lead music, a lot of them about community and love you know, while struggling through a broken marriage. I mean, there were nights when I was like, Wade, I have no idea how you sung that song without like throwing something or being, you know, what, it was just a, it, it was a journey that we were all on as a, as a, a new community. And so uh, you're going to love this CD if you haven't heard it before. Next week is a week to use it as a, as a shaping part of our worship. But since Wade is not here, um, and, and hopefully we, we, we might can like delete this from the podcast or something. But I really want to encourage you to to put your arms around that work. It's a it's a beautiful beautiful work, and some of the songs are inspired by disciplines of things like dialogue and others. It's it's really a story about this community. So I think you will greatly enjoy that. But let me give you a chance to stand up to greet the people that are around you, offer them the peace of Christ. If you're around somebody that you don't know, introduce yourself. Uh, use this as an opportunity to grab some coffee or or uh, um, look for the pecan uh, or the. Oh, it's in the communion bread. Stay out of the communion bread. Uh, <laughs> oh, I thought it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was one of our, our worst communion introductions <laughs> ever. Dan, I'm going to expect more from you than that. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, but stand up and greet each other, and I'll give you a shot in about 90 seconds. Hey, as we're regathering. Sir Jesse has a birthday party invitation for us to throw out there. You want to fire that out as Jesse? Um, yeah. uh, January 8th, Saturday, next Saturday. January 8th, Saturday yeah, at, full at full steam. Yeah, 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. And Philip, Philip's birthday too. It's Philip's birthday. So it's a Jesse Philip Palooza uh, full steam. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to, January 9th is my birthday. And it's also Richard Nixon's birthday. So we'll have a surprise after midnight. There you go. You can tape something or do something like that. Fantastic. And is Philip's uh, is the seventh. So that the eighth. Now, wouldn't that have been the eighth is Elvis's birthday? So you could have uh, jumped in on that. But it's Kendall's birthday too. So we know that's why we know the eighth is Elvis. I don't know why, but we do know that important historical fact. So. 
<laughs> and for, for exactly, Kendall's a big brewery fan at 14. <laughs> so, well, it's good to see everybody. Uh, anybody this Christmas? Just as a quick question, it's usually a, a time of uh, for us. It, it's it's like Netflix on steroids and uh, reading. And anybody like hit a really good story or movie or film this this Christmas or Advent season? Anything that you saw that just was like. Great. Yes. What was it? The King's Speech. The King's Speech. Yeah, it's excellent. It's and, um, a movie with um, Jeffrey Rush and um, Colin Firth, and it's um, it's just great. I can tell you all about it, but I'll let you guys see. Okay, there's a great. That's a strong recommendation. Anybody else? Story, film. Yeah. It's like that sneaky young adult fiction, you know, like you're you're reading Harry Potter and you're going, wait a minute, this is about like really big life themes here. So yeah, and it, it's a neat story of of uh, it's amazing how political the stories we're reading these days that we're giving to our teenagers and uh, and a great story of a, a female heroine that's often roles that would have been reserved in youth stories for all boys 40 years ago. Yeah. Anybody else? Big story, film, something that just uh, caught your imagination. I thought I saw. Yeah, we started cutting out some little A's to wear on our gear around the house. Um, Yeah, so the reason I ask is that I want to tell you a little bit about the role that story has played in my life. And it's... I'm edit, I'll edit a lot, but I, I, I want to be prejudicial toward the, the, the spiritual nature of, of story and how it's impacted me. Um, one is, and this is common to, I know a lot of people had this kind of experience growing up. I grew up um, rural, Southern Baptist, North Carolina, fundamentalist. And so our, our Life, our experience with the Bible was was vivid and intense, but it was a lot about memorizing things. In fact, I was, and I'll, I'll be pretty bold about this. In fact, I think I was the, the king of all kings when it came to like memorizing verses and getting like the the chain link, you know, in the Sunday school classroom. Like my chain link had like a hundred links to it because on Sunday mornings I would wake up and memorize Bible verses so I could kind of spew them out to the Sunday school teacher and get a you know a new link on the chain for each verse that you had. But that was, that was our experience with the Bible was we, were, we, were, we, we memorized it, we learned it, we were devoted to it. We read story after story in Sunday school, but often the stories were kind of treated in a, in a moralizing fashion, meaning that there had to be a point, there had to be something that we needed to replicate. And I, and I look back as I've read the Bible more and more in my adult life, and I'm like, wow, that we must have had some incredibly creative Sunday school teachers to, to find a moral to, you know, how to have a marriage with Isaac or, uh, or how to be a good kid like Jacob, or, I mean, I, I don't know how they pulled that off, but there was always some sort of kind of moral impulse. We love the Bible, but if you were to say to me in, in, as in my heritage, that the, the Bible was a story and it had a, a grand narrative to it, um, other than kind of the, the final week of Christ's life, I'm not sure I would have a 
agreed with that. Um, and I had, and, and I, for some of you, many of you here who are teachers, um, I, 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 I think you know this, but the, the impact that you have on, on people's lives is overwhelming. And for me, my love for reading began largely with teachers who began to challenge me to read things that I would have never thought to read. I remember in eighth grade having that kind of that class, that language arts, social studies class that you always take in middle school and the teacher giving us the book, The Hobbit. And kind of going, oh my gosh, I mean, if anybody catches me holding this book in school, I'm going to be sorely uh, offended by that. And, and I read this and I'm like, wow, the, the story just grabbed me and sucked me in. And I re- one of my vivid memories, I mean, the minute I finished that book, I went and found the Lord of the Rings and I was reading the Lord of the Rings. And um, I, one memory I have is driving to the beach with my family. And this is like desperate reading where you've got the glove compartment of the car open so the little light in the glove compartment that comes on and I had the the, the second volume of the two towers of the Lord of the Rings open in that space just reading that and and my dad who was not a big reader looking at me like son you I mean there's a million things you can do in the car but reading in the glove box has got to be the dumbest thing I can think of and and I I was trying to explain to him dad I cannot stop reading this Um, I mean I I honestly and, and if you're familiar with that series, you know, there's a dramatic ending of the second book. And, and I, I mean, I just, when I got to that on the drive, I was practically begging them to turn around to go and get the third volume. And I was going to have to wait a week for that. But one of the things that was amazing about reading Tolkien for me as a, as a middle schooler and a guy who thought he shouldn't read stuff like that was that for the very first time, I began to think about theology in a way that I'd never thought about it in my whole life. Uh, uh, because for me, theology to that point was right doctrine and right living and, and knowing the, the sins that you avoided and, and the thought of God working in a grand scheme and, and that grand scheme being thwarted or challenged or any, I mean, this was beyond my thoughts. And, and I, as I was devouring that, you know, there's that, that, that um, phrase that was used in the movies of Sam Gamble one of the stars talking about the importance of story and imagining he and his comrades life in this great story that had been going on for thousands of years and and that was a glove box phrase for me I was reading that and I thought oh my gosh this is huge that we're part of a story that God has done more than just kind of invented things and saw that we screwed it all up and sent a savior down to die and that this is something big going on here I can't tell you how Captivating that was to me, and and the the backstory. I mean, I literally when the when when uh, it may have been after he died when Tolkien published the backstory of that. I mean, I bought that book. I mean, just like the second it was published, and read it again and again and again, and 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 I started to think about there was a, an amazing construction in that book. And this is a you know a, a tenth or eleventh grader at the time, uh, but he wrote about two races of human uh, of people of of creation, one that was mortal and one that was immortal. And to me, I was shocked to realize that here's this immortal group of people that value beauty in a way that we don't value it, but they actually weary of life. It's hard to live forever in the state that they're in. And then they wrote about human beings like us who had short-lived lives and great potential, but lived in total fear of death. And I'm thinking, gosh, I sat in church for not just Sunday mornings, but Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, 
from birth to 18 and almost every sermon was about death and salvation and life after death and it never dawned on me to really reflect on how death saturates the thinking of the way we live our lives. The fact that many of our lives, mine included, are obsessions with the avoidance of death. The idea that perhaps God is doing something that's bigger or conquers the concept. I didn't get it until an 11th grader reading a novel by somebody who is theologically motivated, challenging me to do that. And so in some ways, when I think about story, I think about, even as a teenager, learning to think theologically, learning to look for God's great story. And that for me was the hint to kind of go back and say, perhaps there's something bigger that God is doing. And um, skipping ahead in my story, I got to seminary at uh, 21 years old. I was the youngest seminarian in the uh, in in the the, um, the school, and and I had kind of had my I'd had my fundamentalist days as a teenager, and then I had kind of my academic kind of very old world liberal days as a religion student at the University of North Carolina for four years. And so I kind of been in two really different places, and and that was good for me. I, I, it was important for me. To to kind of see different perspectives. But when I got to seminary, one of my most significant quests was in some ways to have some ability to put my arms around whatever the Bible was. Because I knew that from my, my, my childhood that the Bible couldn't be what we thought it was. Some sort of talisman that, that every word was exactly right and every, that, that it, and, and we didn't study it, but we certainly didn't put our coats on top of it in the, in the living room or things like that. I knew it had to be more than that. I knew that the reverence for the Bible was fantastic, but it had to be more than something we valued. And then my years in, in the university life where we, you know, we constantly tore apart the Bible, looking for the real Bible within the Bible, within the Bible, within the Bible, to where we kind of got left with maybe three words that might have been by Jesus. And I thought, you know, that's just far too scientific a, 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 a look at the Bible. What is this thing? And, and, and one of the things that I valued about my graduate education was I was introduced to the Bible as narrative, as story, the idea that there were multiple genres. I know you chuckle at this, but at 21, I wasn't really sure it was legal to think of the Bible as having multiple genres in it. And, and to realize that there were these, that there was wit and sarcasm and, and places that even now I read the Bible and I just laugh out loud because it, it's so witty. It's, it, and the, the, the perspectives in the scriptures change and they move with history and it's real and it's honest. Uh, that, that wasn't really known to me at the time. Um, but one of the things that was really powerful to me is to realize that the Bible was a story, a history of God's work, a history of God's work of not just salvation for persons, but, but recreation of all the things that were created. And for me, that was incredibly liberating. I would read things that I thought I'd read my whole life and realized I've never read this before because I read it in a verse at a time, a phrase at a time, a chunk at a time, but I'd missed the big picture. In some ways, you guys are subjected to that because in many ways, we do a lot of our dialogues where we might look at the whole story of Exodus in six weeks. We we tend to fluctuate to sort of the, the larger portions of that, but in some ways appreciating story allowed me to reclaim the Bible for what it was. Um, but my next part of my struggle at that 
point was the academic side of things were really easy for me. Uh, I, I liked learning. I liked diagnosing things. Uh, I, uh, I know it's hard to say to recent graduates like Amy of seminary, but you know, writing that 120-page paper on Romans was actually kind of fun, you know, albeit on eight verses, and, and I can't remember what I wrote in that, but I, I enjoyed that kind of analysis. Um, but one of the things that I struggled with in my 20s was knowing how to pray. Uh, because in many ways, I learned how not to pray. I learned that some of the ways that I had prayed as a kid were, were, could be expanded upon. But you know, often when you tear something down, it's hard to find what the new thing is for you. And I struggled to find the new thing. And, and I was introduced to uh, meditative and reflective ways of reading the scriptures as an act of prayer. Uh, the, the source for me was I had uh, a good friend who was a Jesuit and, and said, said, you really, really should do uh, some of the Jesuit prayer rhythms. And a lot of those are based on scripture and, and doing things that I'd never done with the Bible, which was to take a text of scripture and pray over that text with that text for weeks on end, uh, imagining, thinking, breathing out the words, taking on the different characters in the story, changing the perspective from the demon to the crowd to Jesus. And one of the things that prayer did is it, it again re- Revitalized my sense of, of story in the scripture. And there were times when, and, and you've probably had this experience as well, where you read something from the text, a story, a snatch of narrative that so pierced your soul. I know for me, I, I was such a good kid growing up that, that even asking for something seemed to be wrong to do. I was one of those kids when I would you know, spend the night with a friend when I was 12. They say, hey, what do you want to do? I would, had been trained to answer that question instantly, whatever you want to do. Even with a friend who was begging me to just, you know, commit to something, my answer was always whatever you want to do. And, and there I was on a, a retreat one time, and I, you guys have heard this before, many of you, um, and part of my prayer rhythm was to encounter this crazy little story in Mark of Jesus and Bartimaeus. And there's Jesus appearing to a blind man and just saying, what do you want to do? And Jesus' perspective was, I'm going to respond to whatever you ask. It, it was, to me, was the most inappropriate question in the whole Bible, but it expanded the idea that, that prayer for me could be an open conversation, that I could say things to God that I would hope that perhaps, even in the irrational as this is, that perhaps God wouldn't notice or know. And so in some ways, reading stories had, have, has shaped my sense of understanding. And, and it's not complete, it's not full, it's not mature in any way, but my understanding understanding of the goodness of God and what God is doing and perhaps even the ability to, to, to come no near tragedy and still somehow cling to faith has been deeply shaped by story. And, and I look at it in the life of our family, and for us, we're obsessed with stories. Uh, uh, we fight over the iTunes gift cards of who's going to get to buy the next book that we play on the iPod and the cars we're driving when we were coming back from the beach uh, a couple of days ago. We're right in the middle of my favorite novel, uh, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and as we're listening, I mean, our family's laughing out loud. Stories are just central to, to who and what we are, and one of the things that I, I want to do is is, for, is impress the significance of story in our lives as worshipers, as people of hope, 
as community. And, and to do that, one of the things that I hope we can do in this next several weeks is liberate your voices to talk about the stories that have shaped your life and, and hopefully liberate our sense of creativity to be able to think in a narrative fashion about not just the things that we see in text, but the things that we see in community, that we see in our lives and we see in our world. And, and sometimes, you know, obviously as people who believe in a sovereign God, you pick up the newspaper and you kind of go, I don't know. Uh, and, and in some ways it's stories that, that help us get over that overwhelming sense that maybe God isn't present in the world the way we, we think and hope and, and need God to be present in the world. So that's what we're going to do. That's our mission for our, our next uh, few weeks is to kind of live in the notion of story, to do some practices, do some things that, that will help us not only be better readers of the text, but to, to look at our lives in, in different ways. But, but even before doing that, what I'd like for you to do tonight, just to kind of get, the, get our voices kind of in our, our open to this a little bit, is what I'd like to do is have you um, share some stories that have shaped your either your imagination, your faith, the way you look at the world, what are, what are stories? And again, when I, when I think of stories, I'm not just thinking about a book that you've read or a film that you've watched, but it might be a family story. It might be a relative. It might be something that you know about your heritage. It might be the life of someone. It might be the stories that you, when you think about, uh, and I realize we live in kind of a, a, a Twitter-ish kind of world where we communicate to each other in shorter bursts, but we're still constantly telling each other stories. The end of most days, I'm sure that you have things happen that you want to tell a friend or tell a roommate or tell a spouse. And those are the stories that we tell. So to, to kind of encourage more of us to do that, what I'd like for you to do is just kind of, if somebody's around you uh, or if you're not around somebody, just kind of bunch up for a couple of minutes. And what I want you to do is just tell what are some of the stories that have shaped your view of the world, shaped your imagination, shaped your faith, or have affected you in some way. It may have even been damaging to your hopes and faith, but what are the stories that are significant to you? And don't edit any realm. In other words, it can be something that you've read or something that you've known or something that was a family story. So just take like two or three minutes to do that and share with somebody around you. If, if this side of the room is a little more sparse than that side, so you, you guys may want to like inhabit over there for a moment, but just share a couple stories that were that have been deeply meaningful to you um, and then, then we'll, we'll reconvene in just a moment. So go for it. So is there a, a story that was, was there something out there that just needs to be told to everybody, a story that has affected your faith, life, hope, imagination, something that has shaped you that somebody said in your group? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, we're watching it now. Internal conflict within their marriage and external conflict that so is kind of attacking them. Um, and just 
feeling like that was a really hopeful and healthy way to have a marriage. And I remember thinking, wow, this is kind of the first time I've seen a picture of what I would love for my marriage to look like to my kids and to other people. And so it was, it was really interesting to me how, you know, the TV show kind of gave me a picture of what I would and it reminds us that, and, and probably not in your case, Chelsea, but in many people's, we live life with voids, don't we? Perhaps you didn't grow up in a marriage or didn't see a, a, perhaps even a very functional marriage in your family, but it isn't functional for the life that you live in today. And so, so many times we have absences in our life where without the power of story, we're not, ima- we're not able to imagine what would be different. And, and that's a great example of that. Uh, somebody else, something that you shared, a story that has shaped you. And this is what's exciting to do this in, in this community. So that's one of our dreams, as Amy said well earlier, is to hear each other's voice in a regular, rhythmic way uh, every week. Or for those of you who are in home groups together, you see each other two or three times a week and hear uh, the tragedies and, and how God is present in that. Or the great positive things that, that aren't imaginable in the week that you're living. And so I, I think that's really important. It's, it's one of the, the, the reasons why it's essential not just to gather, but to be a community that's gathering. That knows each other well enough to be able to hear and receive those stories. And it's one of the dreams that we have around the communion table is a, a space where those type of stories are told. Thank you, Susan. Anybody else? Just a story or a, yeah, sure. Uh, so well that our stories have the effect of blessing and the effect of cursing as well is that we you know how many times that that many of you have have had maybe (laughs) relatives or people in your life that told stories about you that always started with well here's why jesse can't really pull that off you know or or whoever it just uh, you know that our stories can have a powerful negative effect 
on those things. And those of us who as parents have to think a lot about that. But certainly that's, that's a, uh, and I think as you say that, uh, Josh and Dan and Chelsea, and there's probably many others here who are pastor's kids. You've, you've probably grown up around those stories where you just, you know, it, it, it never happened too far from your ears. Uh, and our kids have, you know, there are times when our kids were really young and they expressed the knowledge of some concept that was entirely inappropriate for a five-year-old to know. And you'd have to go, well, they, they live in a pastor's home where these things are talked about normally. And so uh, th- th- our stories are not all the same. Our, we Stories that we live in and around shape us in, 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 in emboldening and empowering ways and they tear us apart as well. And in, in fact... Um, one of the things that I, I want to urge you to think about theologically and spiritually in terms of your life is that story has a lot to do with what you're hoping for, what you're expecting. Uh, for me, the, if somebody say, what does it really mean to be a Christian? I would say that really the answer to that is embracing God's story and being defined by God's story and joining that story, not just as a recipient of grace, but participating in that story. Because one of the things that we believe strongly here is that we've been invited to step into the mission of God and our presence is is absolutely significant. And in some ways, even the, 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 um, the hard part of doing that, in fact, this is maybe one of the reasons why it's nicer to keep at distance is that when when you step into God's story, you're going to see levels of wounding and brokenness and human failure that are overwhelming, so to speak. And that's one of the challenges we face. Thanks for sharing that. So that's one of the things I think is essential is understanding that that part of the the, the act of following God is, is stepping into God's story and not losing yourself entirely in that story, but finding your place in that story. And in some ways, when people press me and say, what is spiritual formation? I would say that often that is um, reshaping, even changing our story sometimes, taking on a new name. Is it, It's no coincidence that so many times in the great stories of the scriptures that the key characters had their name changed. Jacob was changed to Israel, Abram to Abraham, uh, Jacob renamed Bethel to Peniel where he saw the face of God, Saul to Paul. All of these name changes were absolutely essential to someone restating their place in God's story. And I'm sure all of you have experienced this. You, you have friends who, uh, who, um, who perhaps have their view of life as a, maybe as that of a victim or a perpetrator or any of those things. And they've had to have that story changed. Some of you who teach school know that a lot of times you, you, you are uh, encountering kids who maybe have, have been told that they weren't good, they weren't bad, they weren't smart, they couldn't read. And you're trying to change that story. Larry, I would suggest probably in spiritual direction, one of the things that you're doing with people is helping them understand that they can see their place in God's story, perhaps in a bigger way. Uh, that than what they've imagined, or maybe a small and more meaningful way than than what they do. So, in some ways, as we talk about spiritual formation, a lot of times we're we're talking about story. 
Another thing that I hope that we're able to do in this series is to realize that tragedy is, 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 is essential. It's, it's critical to being a part of God's story and being hopeful people. Um, you guys know I love that book by um, Frederick Buechner. I always get the title wrong, but it's the gospel as uh, uh, tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. And one of the things that he makes the point again and again and again is that you can't get the comedy of the gospel, the joy, the, the victory of the gospel without understanding the tragedy of the gospel, the, the, that which is exposed in our lives that, that needs to be redeemed, so to speak. And so there's a place in our lives that where, where tragedy is absolutely essential. How many times do you see uh, in, in a story that plight is the place of redemption? That redemption happens in, in somebody's life or in a story right where they're in a plight. And, and so many times aren't our lives the avoidance of tragedy? How many times is our, our daily dialogue the avoidance of that which hurts or that which is wrong or that which is not just? And in so many times it's the exposure of those things that, that we see God at work. And that's one of the dreams that we have as a community here is that we'll tell stories and sometimes the stories that we'll tell each other will be stories stories of pain that does not relent, injustice that is not resolved, uh, uh, loneliness or heartbrokenness that, that doesn't heal rapidly because in some ways stepping into that dark space is a place where we have the opportunity to sense and imagine the grandiosity of, of God's redemption. So, so, uh, so tragedy has an incredible important role in our understanding our stories and God's story. Also, uh, another thing that I hope that we'll embrace in this is that endings matter, that the ending of the story always matters, that how many times have you read a book and you got to it and you loved it until the final 10 pages and you hated the ending of that story and, and it so affected your sense of somebody said, hey, you were reading that book for, for a month. Did you like it? And you say, no, I hated it because I hated the ending, so to speak. But how many times is normal for us to do everything with life but the ending? Uh, to not imagine the ending and how it might affect how we live in the present. And then here's something we forget more than anything else is that we've been nurtured as human beings uh, like the humans in Tolkien's story to imagine that death is the ending. So, so no little wonder we try to avoid the ending because it always ends in death. We can't imagine anyone who didn't die at the end of their life, so to speak. And, and in some ways, part of our theology and the great story that's being told in the scriptures is that death is not the ending. So in some ways, that asks for us to have an entirely different paradigm shift, not just as we read God's story, but as we read God's story in our own lives. And I know some of you have done this with, with me and, and other parts of your life, but maybe one of the most significant stories that, or, or realities of story that I learned doing youth ministry for many, many years was the connection between hope and story is that when you got near someone, and how many 16-year-olds does this describe, where you would say, tell the story of your life, and, and, and they couldn't in any way imagine a prologue or something that had happened before and something that had shaped them in the present, and, and they couldn't imagine an ending other than something that was a day away or a week away, or, or, or they were resigned that they were going to be limited by something in their life. And, and to me, the powerful <coughs> lesson there was that there, there really isn't hope 
without being able to place your life in the context of a story. A story that has a beginning, a story that has a present, a story that is open to tragedy, it's open to injustice, it's open to failure, but it has some sort of ending, some sort of destination. And in some ways, all of life conspires to help us forget that. And, and, and that to us is why the, the church calendar has been so essential to our community is it constantly tells us that there's another story going on, one that does have an ending, so to speak, one that does have an Easter, one that does have redemption, one that does have recreation. But for most of life, we are asked to imagine um, uh, stories that do not have grand endings or, or, or we're encouraged to forget that there's an ending out there in some way, form or fashion. In fact, that's one of the reasons why to some I've been a part of and done memorial services that have been the most exciting moments of my life where where you you, you basked in the reality that death wasn't the ending and 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 you looked back on somebody's life and they were able to see that they lived not in their mortality but they lived in God's immortality as the shaping rhythm of their lives so that's my invitation for us is to for us to live in the nature of story uh, in fact one of the things i, I was going to say this at the end but just the invitation i have for you for this week is to work hard to remember Work hard to remember the stories that have shaped you. So for some of you, you probably, if I said middle school, you'd have like one big white blank repressive moment. Like, I don't think I went to middle school. And I'm not asking you to like to get some old photos out and go, oh my God, look at my hair. Or, 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 or me kind of going, oh my God, I had hair or, you know, whatever it was. But, but I want to encourage you to remember um, one of the things that we don't do enough of is when we gather with family members, particularly people who are older than us, we, we don't say, hey, tell us the story of this. Because so many of those stories are hidden, they're untold, they're not remembered. And, and in fact, the other the flip side is true. One of the things we don't do enough with children is ask them about stories. Um, Denise Bainham, uh, who's taught literacy through photography and stories, is one of the friends in, in my life who has so impressed the power of children's stories and children's Children's perspectives on life. So I want to encourage you to, to think about the stories that shape your lives. And what we'd like to do in these next several weeks, next week it'll be Wade telling kind of the, a spiritual autobiography of the last decade of his life in music. All of us have different mediums, though, in the way that we tell stories. So I want you to be encouraged to remember and also, we're going to invite you to be able to tell stories in the way that you tell stories with the goal of understanding that our life fits into the greater story and life of God. The last thing I'll say on this is that I think it's fair to say, and it's true to say, that, that all stories are not equal. Some stories are bigger than other stories. And, and that's okay. Like, for example, have any of you guys ever read the Urban Dictionary? Have you ever like looked up your name or or a location in the Urban Dictionary? Well, I, I did this week. <laughs> it's pretty heinous. <laughs> Look up Dan's and you'll be pretty offended. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but um, but like Durham, I looked up Durham in the Urban. Has anybody done that before? This is Durham in the Urban Dictionary. Let me see. I'm going to put on my glasses for this. You will expect this. 
Durham is the ghetto member of the triangle, along with their hippie neighbor, Chapel Hill, and their cleaner, more cultured, and infinitely more snobby neighbor, Raleigh, infamous for its crime and its being all around ghetto, as well as being the home of the very prestigious yet very controversial Duke University. Durham gets flack from pretty much everybody, which is sad because most Durhamites are among the greatest people out there. And of course, like a good dictionary, you have to like use it in a sentence. Here's the use of Durham in a sentence. <laughs> Honey, would you grab my Kevlar reinforced suit, please? I have a business meeting in Durham today. <laughs> the second entry. The awesomest, ghettoest town in the U.S., the heart of North Carolina, often referred to as the armpit of North Carolina, the dirty, the city of murder and medicine, Bull City, and D-Town. <laughs> and then finally, the third entry, a county and a city next to Raleigh and Chapel Hill, Durham is also called the Dirty D, D-Town, and Bull City. It is known for Duke Hospital and Duke University, Michael Peterson, Centerfest, the, New York, the Blue, Duke Blue Devils, North Carolina Central, uh, Duke employees, employees, a majority of the workers in Durham, um, locals but not Duke students, call themselves Durhamites. So, you know, you read that, and we, we've joked for years, Jenny has said this many times, that she can't convince business colleagues to come to Durham for a, for a, for a business meeting. They have to be somewhere out in the park or in Raleigh. And, and when you read that, you kind of laugh because you're like, that's not, the, that's not the community that we live in. So we all know that stories are contextually affected, right? It, whoever's telling the story, their perspective affects that. And so many times we have to look at the smaller stories of our lives. Because I might say, who is Virginia? And Virginia might be having a really bad day. And she might say, you know, I don't know, or I, I don't like her. Or, or she might be having the greatest day of her life. And she might say the most intelligent law student in the world or, or something in between. Context affects our stories. And so one of the things that's essential for us as followers of God is always looking at the bigger story of what God is doing and let that shape the smaller stories of our lives. Um, and, and one of the things that I might invite you to think about God's story, we, we read a lot in, in um, Joshua and Judges about the idea of, of rest. And I have a friend who would say, God's story is constantly about shalom or rest. And that rest is constantly shattered. It's always broken down in some way. And then it's about people looking for that shalom and looking for that rest again. And part of their ability to find that rest is being able to be honest, to be able to say, we are not in Eden anymore. And in many ways, the comfort of the life that we live often tells us that we are in Eden. And if we just would do it a little better, life would feel better. But honesty of the grand biblical story constantly says, no, we're not in that place. And then we begin to look at things like desire and risk in a far better light. Because desire for us is a yearning. It's a, it's a goal. We don't always act on our desires in the right way. But so many times desire has become a negative word when desire is really our yearning to, to get back to the rest that we were once created for. And so many times our lives are, and this is a friend of mine, Dan Allender, saying this, is that we, we reach those denouements where we reach a point, we reach a platform like somebody who's rock climbing where there is peace and rest. And even though we know 
know that life is not perfect. Even in that moment of peace and rest, we're able to imagine better the ultimate peace and rest that God brings. And one of the things that's a challenge in the jaded world that we live in is to never call peace, peace, and never call rest, rest, and never call hope, hope. And I think that's what Jeff does for you to some degree, is to let us pause for a minute and celebrate that something was indeed done in God's name in this place. It might be one of the greatest barriers in politics. I don't know if Dan, if you'd agree with this, that people just believe that involving and caring and getting engaged never matters. But part of reading the grand story is that when we reach those ledges and we reach those kind of denouements, we're reminded that the peace that we experience there will be ultimately expanded in the work that God's doing. So that's our invitation for our community for the next several weeks is to live in story, to live in God's story and live in the stories of our lives. Uh, our, our musicians are going to regather tonight. And one of the things that we're doing tonight, which is kind of a, a typical worship template for us, is to do a song of confession and a song of absolution. And and I'd love to give you something to imagine during those two songs as you're singing or listening is in the song of confession, um, find yourself thinking, praying, or imagining the things that prevent you from seeing, hoping for, or touching God's story. And in absolution, be reminded that we're constantly invited to let that be the story that shapes our lives. Thanks, guys. This next song is probably new to every, to most of you. Um, but uh, when Tim told me that we were going to be uh, doing this series on uh, spiritual autobiography, I, I thought of Doubting Thomas because uh, it is a... Uh, a song that's it's one of the most honest songs I've heard. And I sort of grew up, I'm sure a lot of you guys did, where uh, certainty in your faith and in your salvation was really important. Uh, and so it's almost like the, the, in, the unpardonable sin almost was doubt. And so this song uh, is, the, the, the guy is, is talking about, you know, what happens after death. Is this, you know, is really all these, all these things that I've learned uh, about faith, uh, is it real or is it just going to be nothing? Uh, so it's, it just feels like a very honest song, and um, uh, I think you'll be able to pick it up pretty easily. Sometimes I pray for a slap in the face 
Returning to Durham this week from traveling, I was reminded of how much I love my freedom. You see, I've been with my family all week and with my wife's family. And you know, the thing about families is they love to tell those stupid stories. Uh, stories of things that you really just don't want other people to know. The reason you moved away was that you did not want to hear those stories told over and over again, right? My wife does not need to know about the proclamation I made when I was 12 years old about my earning potential, right? It's not true. It didn't work out, right? She doesn't need to know all the things that I did with the girls when I was growing up in high school or how I tried to avoid them, right? That doesn't need to be told. All those stories that somehow seem so suffocating uh, and the, were the reason that we moved on, we moved away. But I think in moving on and moving away, a lot of us, myself included, have fallen into something else. And that is, in our culture, this overwhelming sense of, well, just make up a new story. That you can just reinvent yourself. That you can just start over. You don't have to be the person you were. You don't have to be the family that you came from. You don't have to be whatever it was that you came out of. Just make it up anew. But I think at the end of that road, many of us also find ourselves overwhelmed with a sense of being lost. That, you know what? I don't know how to make up the difference. I really want to be wealthy, but I still have to go to that crappy job that I have to return to on Monday. I really, you know, no, I didn't want to be a graduate student at 34. That wasn't the plan. But somehow, tonight, as we return to the table, we find that we don't have to be either suffocated by story or lost without one. But we find at the heart of our religion, at the heart of our Christian faith, is a story of God's activity in the world. 
A story that the Apostle Paul relates to us this way. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You see, as we engage in the table tonight, we are engaging in a story. In fact, it's almost like playing out a drama. We're becoming actors in a larger story, in a drama of the time and the moment when God broke into this world and defeated the powers and principalities that had it enslaved. That the sacrifice of Christ, that the death of Christ broke open the world from the captivity that it was in. And we get to play out that drama as we return to the table each and every week. As we come as community, we participate in that story. We participate in that story of God's salvation that will be finally achieved in the return of Christ. So I invite you now to enter into this story, the story that doesn't suffocate you, but opens you and gives you breath with grace. And also a story that does not leave you lost to make it up on your own, but invites you into something larger, a place where God is already moving, already working. And our invitation is simply to follow. At Emmaus Way, we, cel- we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited. We do it in a kind of raucous, loud way, coming up and breaking off bread for one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you. As a special treat tonight, one of you might actually get what looks like, or uh, what, what in Epiphany is known as, or is the body of Christ in the bread itself, right? Tonight it's represented as a pecan. Um, <laughs> We also share wine or juice for one another, pouring it and saying the blood of Christ shed for you. Uh, we invite you now to the table, to a story that is doing nothing other than remaking and changing our world. Amen.
Hey, it's great to see everybody again and hope that for the rest of our community who is still probably traveling some, from somewhere that they will experience God's mercies and grace. And I hope that you leave this place with a sense of God's love, God's grace, and an anticipation of our place in the story of God's redemption. Amen.